Hello again, friends, clients, and fellow financial advisors. I'm Ron Bullis, the co-founder and CEO of LifeWorks Advisors. My guest on today's show is a fintech entrepreneur who's looking to reinvent the financial data supply chain. She's the co-founder and CEO of a company called Intrinio, which is a modern platform where you can access fast, reliable, and affordable financial data through a powerful suite of tools and APIs. She has a unique and compelling vision for the future of fintech and how data is going to revolutionize the way investment advisors, financial firms, fintech companies interact with clients and consumers. Welcome to the Future of Advice, Rachel Carpenter. Hi. Rachel, I have been looking forward to this uh, interview now for a couple of weeks. One, we are sitting in beautiful St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, our videographer made a little mention about the, the, the lack of tan from this Michigan-based <laughs> fintech versus a you know, CEO of a fintech from, you know, Part South of being Florida. an entrepreneur in Florida. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So before we uh, jump into, you know, looking at what is financial data supply and, and what do you guys do, uh, you have a really interesting story of how you came to run a fintech company in the data supply um, industry. So start at the beginning, give us a fast uh, you know, pass through, you know, how did Rachel come to be the CEO of Intrinio and how did you come to be in this space? Yeah, it's a wild story, you're right. <laughs> um, so I grew up in Wisconsin and met my co-founder while we were in college. and. Uh, I had studied finance traditionally. He was on his way to becoming a CPA, so that's kind of where the financial background came from. Um, and when we graduated, we had an idea for an app that we wanted to build that was specifically in the business valuation space. So value style investing, traditional Benjamin Graham methodologies, is the stock over undervalued? Strong buy, strong sell, margin of safety. We were building a tool that would allow investors to just type in a ticker and instantly get insight into the valuation of that company. Okay. So this was kind of our dream. We wanted to build this app. And so we graduated, did the whole sleeping on a couch for a year thing, struggling, no money, fresh out of college, teaching ourselves how to program, which was quite a journey. Uh, I've been kicked out of the code base since then by my team, which is a blessing, but I got just dangerous enough to kind of get this app built. Um, but in building a tool like that or, a, or an app or a website, it's very data intensive. I'm sure a lot of people that are listening have built a DCF model before. It requires a lot of data to make those models run. And so being the fresh out of college hackers that we were, we were actually illegally screen scraping data from 10,000 websites in order to pull down the fundamentals, the stock prices, all the data points that we needed to make this thing run. So obviously you can't launch a business that way. Um, and so we had to go out and start calling the traditional data vendors, Bloomberg, Thomson Reuters, S&P, FactSet, Morningstar. And the quotes that we got back for an early stage company were between 60 and $70,000 a month. Per data feed. Per data feed, just to get data into this into this app. And so, when you think about a company like Goldman Sachs, they spend four hundred million dollars on data a year, and that and trust me, they don't want to be spending that much. But for a startup, seventy thousand dollars a month, you're dead in the water overnight. And so, our dream was killed. We couldn't build the app. We couldn't move forward, and we had just spent an entire year of our lives building it. And so, it was this moment of just pure defeat, but also. Sometimes that anger can fuel some some really good ideas and force you to kind of get moving. And so it was at that point in time we realized it felt, you know, the analogy I use often is that it felt like we had built this custom car and it was just sitting in our driveway and we couldn't put gas inside of it. So you're just looking at it 
you can't sell it, you can't do anything with it, you don't have the fuel that you need to get it out of the driveway. And so we were inf absolutely infuriated and said, well, maybe we should look at the gas industry instead. Maybe that's an angle here, everything, that, um, you know, the underlying data that anybody's gonna need to build an innovation in this space. And so that's when we kind of pivoted and started looking at that as a, as a, a route to go down instead. Yeah, so uh, I've had that feeling of the, the shiny car in the garage with no gas uh, being an entrepreneur myself. So you guys basically you know, built a really interesting tool and we're gonna bring it out to advisors and firms. That makes complete sense. And then you ran into the wall of the traditional side of the industry and the monopoly on certain things, right? right? And so you just said, well, now let's go take on, you know, not just one 700 pound gorilla, but like six of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, so, so you and your co-founder decided to start looking at the data side of it, the gas in your analogy. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened then? What comes next? So we knew there had to be kind of two core pillars to what we were going about. The first was that the more we learned and really dug in and researched what was going on inside of these big data firms, you realize it's the classic innovator's dilemma across all of these companies. They've built up all of this infrastructure, technical debt, human capital intensive processes, really expensive systems. For example, Bloomberg is built on 15 million lines of Fortran code. People my age don't even know what Fortran is because that code is, it's so archaic, right? And so there's a lot of technical debt, a lot of manual processes. And so outside of the fact that there's just oligopolistic pricing power with these five firms, um, they have really outdated processes. And so we knew we were, we had a unique advantage in that we could rebuild the supply chain for this data from the ground up on the most modern technologies to keep it super scalable, automated, modern code bases. And then that means that we could pass all those cost savings and efficiencies down to our customers which is good because we wanted to focus on the innovators. You know, where are the people building the next generation apps, the automated investing tools, the AI bots, the stock screeners? Where are the people building the really innovative things? That's where we wanted to, to power data into tools like that. Um, but a lot of those kind of customers are just getting off the ground. You might be an advisor that just started his shop or somebody, yep, or somebody who's just building an app and you know, just getting your first lines of code written. And so taking an automated approach we knew would, would help us serve that market better because we could keep the prices significantly below the large, large vendors. And so the pillars were, A, let's make it super automated, everything we build in the tech stack, and B, let's focus on selling to technical end users. So we want it to be the fuel, the plumbing, the pipes. We're not building the apps, we're selling the data to the people that are building the apps. And we want it to kind of be the engine behind that. And so, you know, it's a very technical product, it's an API. Um, you have to be an engineer or a quant to really understand how to use it, but once you do use it, you can build, it's, it's unlimited what you can build on top of the data. Yeah, I mean, I had a, a really interesting conversation with, with Bill Capuzzi, the CEO of Apex, uh, a while back on our podcast, and he was just kind of talking through one of the things that we run into at the advisor level, and, and he sees it even more as the, at the custodial level, like how outdated the systems are for books and records, for trading. You know, we had this, this brief interchange, and, and we've talked offline about it a lot, why do we still have T plus two for settlement? Like we live in a world where everything is instantaneous and everything's digital. Yeah. And you know, the structures that kind of surround Wall Street and the financial industry, to your point, are built on, you know, mainframe hardware is sitting in basements and places that, you know, takes hundreds of people just to maintenance the things, but to shut them down and try and do something new would require like a reboot of the entire system. Yeah. So so I've talked to some of the same people that you've mentioned, these firms, as we've been looking for data and, and for different purposes and had sticker shock, right? right? Um, 
where do you even go to start getting data on companies? Because some of them, uh, some of the data are owned by like a State Street or a BlackRock or right. you know S and P, and they they have you know copyrights and trademarks and things like. That. How did how did you guys even go about starting to say okay, we can reimagine how we could build the plumbing for a fintech firm or for an advisor to get data, yep. but now you still have to go and get it get it <laughs> legally right <laughs> without screen scraping yahoo finance we are following the rules now i okay, promise okay 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 so how did so how did you guys so how did you guys go about starting to get the data so um, one data set at a time, right? And so it got faster and faster and faster, and now we're at the point where some of our technology enables us to build ten, build a data set in 10 minutes, right? But it took, it's taken us years to get there. Um, and so data set number one was just pure fundamentals, right? It's not sexy, but it's necessary for almost every single investment strategy that you work on. And for us, it was near and dear to our hearts because we were building a, a value investing DCF tool and it was the one data set we knew we needed the most was fundamental financial statement data. And so it's all at the SEC, technically, Okay. but it's a mess, right? So I can't imagine the SEC is <laughs> what my interactions with them on the compliance side, no offense to the SEC, Right. Um, is it's, it's cumbersome and yeah. kind of outdated. It's very outdated. There's no API, right? You just have to download all of the 10Ks and 10Qs into Excel. What's, what's even more challenging on top of that is that accountants get to file those 10Ks and 10Qs however they want to. And so Apple may report, uh, or Oracle may report cloud computing revenue, hardware revenue, software revenue, whereas Apple's just reporting revenue. And so how do you even reconcile that data as an investor? If you just wanted to compare revenue of one company to another, that's hours and hours of work to standardize and get all the data added up and all the line items in the right way. And on top of that, companies change the way they file their financial statements over time. They add new business lines, geographic segments, yeah. and so it becomes a mess, right? What FactSet and Bloomberg and all these large companies do is they have 10,000 analysts overseas manually typing all of that data in and normalizing the financial statements. We use machine learning. but takes a while to train a machine learning algorithm. Yeah. And so we had this kind of hellish year early on in the company where we were manually feeding 10Ks and 10Qs into a to model. To get it to start to learn. To train, right. Okay. To understand you know, nuances in, in different accounting techniques. Um, and so it took a while to really get that thing moving. Now, when a 10K or a 10Q hits the SEC, in less than five minutes, it's pulled into our system, completely standardized to a tag set, piping through the API, and showing up inside an app that one of our customers is building. Interesting. And so it took a while to get there. And you know, data set number one, right? We have dozens that's of them the, That's one, we're just fundamentals. Yeah. Okay. So the only thing we sold in the first year of the company was we were just a fundamental data shop. Um, and actually we pushed forward on our website when we only had coverage of like a thousand stocks. <laughs> so it was challenging in the beginning. Um, to kind of reach a critical mass. And yeah. so since then, we've expanded because there's a wealth of information at the SEC. I mean, it's low-hanging fruit for us. And so we've done institutional holdings, insider transactions. Uh, we've gone to the FDIC to do um, call reports and bank regulatory reports, pulled in economic data from the Federal Reserve. Um, and so public places where there's data that's not clean, not easy to get to, yeah. and for a technical engineering use case, the ability to have it clean, quality, fast, pipe through an API, chat support resources documentation that doesn't exist if you're just going to try to go scrape directly from these public sources and so that was kind of the first area that we focused on um, the second area naturally after that is market data right you want the fundamentals and you want the pricing usually as a as kind of a, a group and so 
that's a totally different story because now you're working with the exchanges, which is a, a tough place to be because exchange fees are extremely high. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of regulation coming out in that space that could be interesting to see over the coming years. Um, you can't get around the exchange fees, but we have unique partnerships with some of the exchanges. We work really closely with NASDAQ and Intercontinental Exchange um, to delay the data slightly, which can get you totally away from having to pay those exchange fees. Yeah. So if you are building an app and you want to show a stock chart or a stock price, you may, if it's real time, you may end up having to pay the exchange fee and then every single person that looks at your app has to pay the exchange yes. fee. So to get around that, we do some unique things with market data to kind of delay, speed it down, intraday, 15 minute yep. delayed. So now we have the whole gamut of equity pricing from historical um, all the way through to real time. So uh, I'm gonna pick up on a couple of things that you said around machine learning and maybe some buzzwords because we, we see them in industry publications. Again, at the, the, the advisor end of this, and probably a lot of people that are watching this, we're using, you know, well tech and fintech applications that are using data from, you know, like your company and others. But step back real quick, tell me a little bit about the current state of Intranio now. How many employees? Uh, I, I know you are based here in St. Petersburg, Florida, which is an awesome um, city. Uh, where is your team at? What does it look like? What's the size of Intranio? Yeah, absolutely. So we have about 28 employees right now, which when most people hear about the types of data we're delivering and how complex the infrastructure is, they're very surprised to hear. But it's because we're not manually curating data sets, right? We're a very technical team that's building automated ways to do all of this. And so we don't have to have 10,000 people overseas. And so it's kind of a testament to what we've got going on under the hood. Um, and so we are headquartered primarily down here in St. Petersburg, which is beautiful, as you yeah. can see. And I didn't actually originally know whether or not we were going to stay here. Very early in the founding days of the company, um, my co-founder and I moved down here because it was an affordable place to get off the ground and being from Wisconsin, get away from the snow for a while. And so we needed a break. We came down here, realized that the tech community was actually really starting to explode down here. Yeah. It was kind of an to the value investing point early, an undervalued area. You're right on the water, walkable, lower cost of living, and some really unique and interesting startups that, um, that are kind of popping up around here. And so we never left. We stayed here. We thought we were going to get off the ground here and kind of see what happens. Um, but I think the dynamics changed in the entrepreneurial world. If you're a fintech company, you don't have to be in New York anymore. No one's in New York right now, right? I mean, so it's really changing. And I would say early on, I got a lot of pushback from investors who would say, fintech in florida now they're like you're not can I come down? somewhere yeah yeah they're like now can i come down for a board meeting in december and get a, you know they're now they understand yeah. your money goes a lot farther down here your employees are happier and so we've loved being here um i will say the only challenge is that there isn't a whole lot of deep tech talent down here and so my engineering team is completely remote i've got engineers in california kansas arkansas colorado um and i think it's much easier to run a remote team from the engineering perspective. You do daily stand-ups, you see whether or not the code's getting pushed. Um, and so we try once or twice a year to get everybody together, uh, but it's obviously been challenging during 2020 and 2021 so far. Um, so we're kind of spread out on the engineering side, but everyone else is headquartered here. And I would say probably the most surprising thing about our team is how technical everybody is. I'm a former engineer. My chief operating officer has a master's in data analytics. My salespeople are teaching themselves Python so that they can interact with our customers better. I mean, it's just, it's a very, very tech forward team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so this is a really great segue. For, for those of us as financial advisors, when we're looking at kind of the world now, I think there's, there's some people that think that technology isn't going to supplant advisors. I'm, I'm in that camp, but I have a unique uh, maybe perspective on it. 
then there's some of them, then there's maybe another camp that's really feeling like, oh my goodness, like the speed with which apps are being built, the accuracy, the, the ease of use, mm-hmm. um, the ability to scale, right? Um, it, it, it's going to pose a challenge to traditional financial advisors and firms, um, especially in a world where we read about something like, you know, a neural network or machine learning or artificial intelligence, which I know those are buzzwords. So let's start with one because you already mentioned it, which is machine learning, mm-hmm. right? Instead of having you know a staff of hundreds and thousands of people looking at a report, typing it into a database to right. then turn it into an electronic record that can be used for analytics, mm-hmm. you guys started by building right from the beginning tools to use machine learning and, and neural networks, correct? Mm-hmm. So describe for those of us, you know, knuckle draggers that aren't software engineers and uh, don't have a background in, <laughs> in, in this, just how do you frame to the financial advisor like me, like the importance of having, you know, machine learning or, or a neural network or, you know, this kind of technology as the base or the, the foundation of your company? Right. So I would say, first and foremost, the way I think about this is that there's a big difference between intelligence and advice, right? Like you can provide information to somebody in a very efficient way, which is exactly what we're just an information provider. We are not in the business of advice. We're innovating so that we can get better intelligence into the hands of the people who then have to put a human brain behind actually giving a human being advice, right? And so I think there's a big difference there. And I think we've seen kind of, especially through the robo-advisory lens, Automating the advice piece is just meh, right? I mean, it's, you know, It's a dime a dozen now. Yeah, and it's not not that powerful, right? And so I agree with you. I don't think that there's going to be a complete disintermediation of the advice industry. I think that there's a lot of innovation happening kind of on our end and the back data side to get tools, data, and intelligence into the hands of those people. The caveat with that, I would say, is when you think about a company like Rentech, right? They're automating advice, right? The really big, systematic, quantitatively oriented hedge funds, that's a totally different category. Like, yeah. they're doing something crazy, but that you're talking about the top 2% of, peop- of firms in the world, right? The other 98%, they're not going to have what Rentech has going on underneath the hood. That is completely a whole different ballgame of wildly sophisticated, automated investment strategies. Um, and so step, stepping away from that, you're gonna need a human behind it. And I'll give, you, I'll give you a good example. We're working on a product right now um, that essentially is a natural language processing engine that reads the entire SEC, all of it. So you think about from a research or advice perspective, how many people spend time poring over a 10K or a 10Q or going and looking at a press release or a 13F, and with, with our new system, you can query our, our API and ask any question in the world. How is Apple handling the COVID pandemic? Are there any risks in Tesla's supply chain? Has IBM made any acquisitions recently? What kinds of sustainability challenges is Chevron facing? If an analyst wanted to ask what kinds of sustainability challenges is Chevron facing? You start reading and downloading reports and hours on and investor calls. and Right. Yeah. It takes hours. And so this automates getting that intelligence quickly into the hands of that, that person. But then what do you do with that? Right? Say you've got a list of ESG factors or you've clustered companies based on their beliefs or you're pulling in all this semantic intelligence. 
we're really good at using AI to, to answer those questions and get that insight out there, but we're not telling you what to do with it. Yeah. That's not our expertise. You're just right? shortening <laughs> the gap between what's actually happening, say, in you know, with how a company is operating and getting that into the hands, hopefully driving it to advisors, right? right? So that we can use that data in a way to make decisions that are, you know, more durable, more sustainable, better aligned with what our clients' objectives are, things like that. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. I know one of the ones, so you mentioned ESG before we go back to talking about, you know, cool technology buzzwords. You gave me a couple, you said artificial intelligence, natural language processing. Yeah. Um, one of my passions and the reason I started this podcast about the future of advice was to try and pull it, the, the conversation in the financial advising space and in the wealth management space forward, right? To say like, here's amazing technology that's being used in other industries and it's, mm -hmm. it's revolutionary stuff. And, you know, we're still using, you know, software that requires us as advisors to log in and the output is a PDF that's 100 pages to yeah. a client, mm -hmm. right? And then we look at it, and this is a little bit of a long setup thing, and then, you know, we look at the average financial plan and it's generally some kind of PDF presentation mm -hmm. with charts, spreadsheets, and graphs. Uh, my vision is the second that it's printed, saved, or emailed to the client, it's wrong. Because yeah. in just that short time gap, the entire world has, has shifted. Yeah. Um, but then we're... Theoretically, and I say theoretically because every firm does this a little bit differently, basing our clients' investment strategies or giving them advice based off of that. But there's this massive gap between real-time mm -hmm. decision-making and, and, and kind of how our, our structure is now. So I'm going to pick up on one because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of industry buzz, let's say, about ESG. I'm actually really excited about it, but not from the standpoint of maybe what's out there, mm -hmm. um, because I still have more of maybe a traditionalist view that analyzing a company based on profitability and what they're doing is is the sound way to start. Right. But I think giving the next generation of wealth holders, right? I'm, I'm 39 years old, you and I are, are roughly in the same age. Mm -hmm. I think giving the next generation of wealth creators and wealth holders the ability to say, these are my value sets and these are the things that are important to me. And now I need, to, I need data to say like, is, is Apple really like us is, you know focusing on sustainability mm -hmm. like are they really reinvesting in in underserved communities like or is it just you know a marketing plan like talk to us a little bit about how you see natural language processing and some of the tools you're using pulling out that data so that we might actually be able to say to our clients yeah. in real time like here's how we can help you find companies that align with you know yeah. ESG standards or other value factors or something talk to us a little bit about about that, just riff on that for a minute. Yeah, so this is a tough one. I think there is, this is only going to get bigger. It's only gonna become more and more of a factor in people's investment strategies as time goes on. The problem is that, how do you define it, right? Every company has their own rankings, right? You've got companies like Just Capital um, that are ranking the most just companies in the world, but what's going on underneath the hood, right? How are they ranking those companies? And they, they're doing a really good job, but then you talk about Invesco, they have their own ESG rankings. And so, A, where, where is the data coming from is the first question, right? Where there are no real true mandated regulations around what you have to file and how you need to file it. And if there were, where would you go to get it? How would you source it? Would it be standardized across all the companies? And so there's a huge regulation standard setting thing that really hasn't solidified around this industry yet. So getting access to those raw materials is tough. Um, and that's challenge number one. Challenge number two is, let's say you do somehow find a way to get factors from a, a bunch of companies in the same sphere. How, how do you then rank them? How do you analyze that? And there's a million different ways to go about it. And so. We've just started dipping our toes into this. Um, you're able to 
ping our API um, for a list of company values, for a list of things like business strategies, which sometimes can, can touch on that ESG space, sustainability challenges, and diversity and inclusion. So you can ping and just get an instant list across, say, the S&P 500 of all of their cultural values. Um, and then you can do really interesting things because you can start clustering companies based on their beliefs or based on their values. And then you have themes and it gets very interesting. So there's a lot that our clients can do once they pull that data down. Um, but that's kind of how we're looking at it is because there are no standards set and there is no clean way to file ESG information, you kind of just have to read it all. Yeah. And using a neural network and a vectorized set of text to, to run natural language processing is really the only way to pull those insights out in any trustworthy way. This information is everywhere. It we might be it, in a, We gotta get it standardized, get yeah. it in one data set. Yeah, and so we're just reading all of it, it. and asking questions to get, to get the right insights out through our new NLP tech. Can we say you're reading it? It's not you. It's not me. A human. It's, it's Thea, actually. We've named Thea. her Thea. Okay. Yes. Thea. I like that. Yeah. Um, do you see the, the intersection of the data sets from you know around like the filings with the SEC and the places that you're pulling this this data in like you know company values are you starting to see or are you guys doing some work to taking you know social media and the you know the GameStop meme stock thing of of, of recent right? right I just this is maybe an example and I could be completely off base so you can you know shoot this one and, sure. and kill it if it's a bad one but I think that there's also something to this idea of the the user input, right? What what's going on, say, with social media or how people are interacting with you know chat rooms and talking about stuff, you know, kind of the the social capital or momentum of say like a stock or an industry, right? right? Are you is there anything that's maybe happening there where there's some connectivity of things like that with like the data sets that you guys have? Interesting question. So I think so, and. That's kind of getting into the, the social sentiment, alternative data space a little bit. Yeah. What's interesting about the technology that we've built is that it's data set agnostic. Mm -hmm. It can process natural language in any form. You could feed Harry Potter novels into it if you wanted to and ask questions against the Harry Potter novels, right? So the, it's limitless, yeah. you know, what we want to, what data how we want to... How accurate is it? For those of us that don't, we, we maybe understand the definition of natural language processing. Right. How accurate is it? So this is why we've taken this direction with our company, because the advances in natural language processing just over the past two years have gone through the roof. If you just research GPT-3, BERT, Electra, some of these new transformer models that have come out, those are a couple keywords to search for, the, the speed and the accuracy with which they're able to read and comprehend information is now exceeding human level performance for the first time in quite a long time. And so what we always say, based on the, the uh, the terminology is basically an F score. Um, based on that, our Thea has better reading comprehension than the average college graduate. But you have to also understand, considering that would be if an, the average college graduate had to go read every document at the SEC. Interesting. So I didn't mean to interrupt that. I, that was just I wanted to make sure I asked that. So you were talking about you know this alternative data set, kind of social sentiment. Right. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to no, that's interrupt okay. that. But I, that's just something <laughs> that I was like, how accurate is 
is this? Okay. I'm good with going down tangents. Okay. Sometimes they take us to interesting places. <laughs> um, so yes, eventually I think we would be able to feed social sentiment into this. Um, and I think... And start to cross those. Right. Okay. Similarly to how we started with kind of our core quantitative fundamental data sets, we're kind of starting with one data set, which is the SEC. But could we go after news? Could we go after social media feeds and, and add those into the mix that you're asking questions across a broader... Um, the only thing I would say with that is that the value in siloing off the SEC is that you're asking questions directly to what the company said, Got it. right? So from a research perspective, it's almost a different use case. But there could be two separate products there where do you want to hear straight from the how does the company view itself is really the frame with which you're asking those questions if the data set is the SEC filings. If you open it up, it is very interesting. It's just a different use case. And so I think we might go down that path eventually. Well, I think you know I'll, I'll pick on Major League Baseball and, and Delta and, and Coke. I have nothing against the companies, and this isn't uh, a personal opinion, but one can really clearly or very easily see right now if, if you're paying attention that you know when corporations uh, and entities are kind of getting involved in you know politics and social issues, whether that's right or wrong isn't isn't my statement here, mm -hmm. but you start seeing you know maybe half of the United States then has an opinion as to whether they like that involvement and the other half maybe is on the other side and I'm wondering if uh, and I'd like your opinion on this if the ability to start blending that you know those SEC filings with how the company sees themselves and views it mm -hmm. with now you know maybe all of a sudden an explosion of say like anger or frustration or you know kind of the social sentiment about a decision that a corporation or an industry is making right right yeah, because that's what actually matters. Correct. Now right? I look at this and say, well, what happens if a bunch of people stop drinking Coca-Cola because mm -hmm. now they've all sworn off Coke because of, again, I'm not making a judgment as to right, right or wrong. This is just an a, example, just an example yeah. of, you know, social sentiment driving consumer decisions. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And you know, the phrase is like, "Go woke, get broke." I mean, and these are all just memes again, right? Yeah. But we live in a world where memes matter. <laughs> memes do right? matter, yes. Um, Dogecoin was through the roof in the yes. past day. <laughs> it was I, unbelievable. So this is part of why this is a fascinating thing for me, and, and hopefully I'm not the only one that's fascinated by, by this level of conversation as an advisor, is I'm going to be looking for tools and trying to figure out, like, how do we understand the impact of memes and social sentiment on businesses? Right. And, and what does that mean if I'm looking at, maybe I'm a long-term type of in, in investment style thesis where I want to buy a good company and hold it for a long term. You mentioned Benjamin Graham, right? I think it's the Bible of, in, of value investing, right? Mm -hmm. um, versus maybe I'm somebody who's going to run a momentum fund for my clients and try and trade a little bit more aggressively. And, you know, um, this to me, I think is something that uh, we'll have to see more of, right? Yes. Because we're getting signaling, right, from consumers right. around this. Well, to your point, Right, using a neural network to ask questions and consume information at the SEC is a fundamental approach yeah. to investing. Yes. You're using AI and, and yeah. NLP, but it's really, you're, you're looking at the fundamentals. Yeah. But can you ignore what's happening out in the real world? <laughs> and, and I think the smartest, thing, you, you, the smartest thing is to look at everything, yeah. right? You don't have to include it into your investment decisions, but um, to be able to scan the general population because they do have sway. I mean, look what happened with GameStop. It, it, it happened. You, I think we're getting to the point where we can't ignore the consumer voice in those decisions anymore. And the velocity with which a an event can cause the domino effect, right? Or or a megaphone effect is. I mean, that's just the world we live in, yeah. right? 
Uh, I think about an example, I, I really enjoy playing chess, right? And so when I asked the question about the accuracy of NLP, I was thinking about like, you know, Deep Blue versus Kasparov, right? And, and years ago, them taking a, a finite set of possible moves, which is a chessboard, right? And then letting it learn over time to go against, you know, one of the foremost grandmasters in chess. So the point that the accuracy is better than a college level reading yeah. um, is, is both Scary. Encouraging and scary at the same time. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Talk to us a little bit about um, some other things, and, and without violating NDAs, because you guys you know, probably have lots of that with companies that are plugged into you. What are some of the exciting things that you see you know, fintechs or wealthechs uh, using data for now? And, and like some maybe cool projects about getting into specifics yeah. and, and use cases for this. Yeah, there's the, the thing about market data and financial data is that the use cases are just unlimited, right? We have news stations that buy data from us. We've got corporates that power their investor relations dashboards based off of our data. Tons, hundreds and hundreds of fintech apps and tools that I'm sure a lot of advisors use. We might be the data provider behind the scenes and the advisor might not even know, right? Um, but I would say there's definitely themes and categories. One very interesting one is actually education. And so options trading academies or options trading tools, or you know, retail investor education uh, websites. And so we're, they obviously need data and charting, and here's how to read a financial statement. Um, and so we've had a lot in that kind of education space, which I think, just given the trends recently, probably makes a lot of yeah. sense with the yeah. explosion in retail investing. Um, and so we plug into a lot of those retail education platforms. Um, but to our earlier conversation, the number of fintech companies buying data from us for their tools that have the word, or the phrase AI, in their name or in their description is just through the roof, right? And so some of them are actually very interesting. We're working with one company in particular, um, and we're not under any, under any name with them. They're called AIRA, A-I-E-R-A. Um, and they track earnings calls, but they use ASR, automatic speech recognition. And so they put the advisor or the investor in front of this portal where you can pick your keywords and you can be tracking two corporate presentations, three earnings calls, and, and see a live stream of any time that word is mentioned anywhere in front of you on a dashboard. And so they're actually taking an interesting angle. We're doing more kind of text recognition. They're doing speech recognition for those live calls. Um, so there's really cool tools like that now that are available in a very affordable fashion yeah. just for an individual seat license to be able to use really powerful technology like that to pull in insights and just have a better dashboard and better insights and make better decisions. Um, so we're seeing a lot kind of in that AI space as well. Yeah, and that's something again, you know, on the financial advisor side and, and the wealth management side, there's, you know, always articles that kind of pop up. The challenge is I feel like they're always a little bit light, right? They use the terminology um, in, in still a very futuristic sense. And one of the things that I'm seeing is, hey, if we if we kind of get out of looking at the traditional software that advisors use and put ourselves in the space of like non-traditional fintech startups, and then you're like, wait, there's a company that built a program to literally take investor calls and let me in real time be searching for keyword data. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's an interesting way of saying, somebody might be making decisions a month then before it gets fed into my traditional data software and an analyst at Morningstar you know, writes a small white paper on their take on the company. That's a great, very astute <laughs> right? point, right? I mean, I mean that's, that's We still get I'm... these, the, you know, we still pull up Morningstar, uh, uh, my team not, yeah. not anymore, but that was, you know, that was kind of the way things were happening as we were looking right. at fund, their fund analysts, their ETF analysts, their mm -hmm. equity analysts, right? And there's there's a place for it. So again, I'm not knocking yeah. it, but you know, oh, it might course, be like right? it might be like six month old data that's on that 
that that fund That's analysis a great sheet. Point. That's exactly what, what my entire team is passionate about, right? Is like the people that have access to that fuel and that data before anybody else, they're gonna win, right? And so you've got these legacy data vendors who will always have a place, I think, right? The Bloomberg terminal is not going anywhere. I, there will always be a person who needs to sit at that thing and use it. We're not you know, trying to say that that's going away. But you have this manual approach to sourcing the data. It's gonna take longer. So any tools that are fed by those large vendors, you're late to the game. Versus the companies like Era and Intrinio who are using ASR and natural language processing to pull in the insights and put them inside of FinTech apps to your point, you're going to get that in insight way before anybody else does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, a word. My business coach was giving me a little bit of grief uh, when I was in Dallas two days ago interviewing him for the podcast because he doesn't like me using the word win. Um, uh, <laughs> but there is this idea of how does a financial advisor or a firm win the future, right? right? The speed with which the world moves. I heard somebody at a Barron's conference a couple years ago. His name's Peter Sheehan. He's a consultant, I believe, out of Australia. I'm, I might be bastardizing his quote a little bit, but I'm just paraphrasing. It was something like, the rate of change that you experienced in the last 12 months is the slowest rate of change you'll experience for the rest of your life. And I remember writing that down because I was sitting there and thinking, and this was 2019, I was at a Barron's conference, and then 2020 came and it's like, right, the entire world and industry mm -hmm. shifted. Like, for advisors, uh, no more in-person meetings for most of us, no more traditional marketing, no more golfing at country clubs. I mean, in Michigan, they closed up a golf down. Still don't Tragic. quite understand why. <laughs> I actually don't golf. So for me, I lost, I, I cried not out, but like seven of the guys on my team are avid golfers. And, yeah. you know, there was a massive, you know, injustice that's happening because I can't golf. And I'm like, of all the things. But anyway, okay, I digress. But, but these, this idea of, of the speed with which things can shift and change and I believe the value of an advisor is going to be helping clients or, or, or firms, if we're advising firms, mm -hmm. like navigate it in real time. Right. Yeah. The world's changing around you. You have to change as well. And that's the challenge of the advisor, right? I can't imagine how many of them are getting questions about Bitcoin and yeah. Dogecoin and GameStop. And you have to know, you have to know what's going on there. You can't, yeah. you can't avoid it. And to your point, the world changes around you. You're, you can't do it the way you've always done it. It's not going to be a model that works. Do you guys have any clients currently or, or people that are working on your platform that you can think of, again, about violating NDAs, that are building tools for advisors like myself to maybe be able to step into? You mentioned one of them where we could you know, take investor sentiment. Do you have any others that you have as examples or use cases of people that are using data in a, a more modern and, and, let's say, intelligent way? Yeah, absolutely. So that's probably one of the more unique ones is being right. able to specifically track um, earnings calls and, and live streams of, of meetings that are happening. Um, but you get down to even the basics, just executing trades, managing portfolio management software, and trade execution, trading apps in terms. There are hundreds of alternatives out there to actually manage your portfolios and execute your trades that are not as expensive as the traditional vendors. And some of them have really cool features in them too that you don't have anywhere else. And so I would say kind of AI insights, okay. which I mean, there are dozens in that category. Earnings call, keyword tracking is just one of them. Yeah. But the, there's just unlimited amounts of AI insights. Some of them are in the social sentiment space as well. Um, and so AI insights, tracking earnings calls, and then just doing the basics more effectively and more efficiently at lower costs, yeah. like managing portfolios. How are you guys interacting with, I'm gonna kind of maybe break the industry down a little bit here. What, what kind of interaction do you guys have and are, are you seeing any you know, kind of gates or barriers uh, with the traditional custodians and maybe the large 
you know, market makers who are handling a lot of the trades for those, you know, custodians. Do you guys run into any barriers or walls there? Um, sometimes. So we sell into that institutional space a bit. We have a lot more traction kind of with the hedge funds and quant funds yeah. because they're more prone to pulling in the API straight into their models. The bigger banks and the bigger, especially the custodians, they already have all the data they need or they wouldn't be where they're at. And so it's a tougher sell for us. What's interesting though is that once anybody within that bank is working on an innovative project, maybe the bank is building their first mobile app, or maybe they figured their fundamental team needs to be more of a quantumental team. Um, and so, or maybe they decided they want to build a dashboard inside their, their platform and they need to chart something. Anytime that those sparks of innovation start to happen, those people do not want to go through the traditional market data process. Yeah. They don't want to go see if there's a seat available for Bloomberg only to find out that Bloomberg won't give them API access, right? Going to talk to your market manager, market data manager is a nightmare. And so they look outwardly to find platforms like us. And so we do work with the custodians in some capacity for smaller projects like that. And that's a way to kind of get in and show them, hey, this is really the future of consuming data, yeah. right? Like your 19 year old data scientist wants to buy our tools, right? And so, but they're bigger, they're, they're slower, they're a little bit behind the times. And so it's a, we're starting to dip our toes into that market a little bit. The other challenge we have sometimes as well is that a lot of our clients might already have a brokerage that they're working with mm -hmm. and they just, package some data along with it. Yeah. And so that's a challenge we run into kind of in that space. It just depends how the firm is structured. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, I could rant for a while without, you know, necessarily mentioning names about how we have to get data from the custodians for, you know, calculating performance returns for our clients, for instance. I mean, yeah. they, they, they still, you know, use SFTPs and send us data files every morning Oof. and it's, yeah. And we live in a world where we're looking around and our chief data scientists and our tech guys are like, you know, there's APIs for us to get this data through Intrinio and things like this, and then every morning we're dealing with you know a start of day file. And anyway, I'll digress. But so we're running into a problem where you know the speed with which we want to get data on our clients' accounts is not matching the speed with which we can get data for our research, our, our quant stuff, and, and things like this. And so I was just curious uh, if, if you guys were seeing some of that. Yeah. Another question is: talk to me a little about. Um, this idea of, of licensing the ownership of data. So mm -hmm. I, I'm going to pick on, I'm just going to give an example again, uh, you know, S&P 500 trademark, you know, the, the constituent index data or specific, uh, you know, funds. Uh, we've bumped into this. I'd be curious, you know, how you guys are handling this where you have to pay for that data. And then mm -hmm. every time you license it or provide it in your APIs, like we have to pay for that data. Are you guys running into this kind of like, you know, those companies trying to build bigger moats or walls around you know the ownership of their data so you have to pay a massive premium to get it yes uh, there has been an insane amount of consolidation in this industry okay. the largest m a transaction in the entire country in 2020 was in financial data s p bought ihs market for 44 billion dollars so there, it's just continuing to consolidate right and i yeah. think there's been this just kind of buzz of saying, who's gonna be the one that doesn't get acquired, right? Who's gonna be the one that's really puts the stake in the ground and says, there's gotta be more competition here. And, and it hasn't quite happened yet. There's been a lot of consolidation in this space, but it is super challenging. What I would say is actually even more of an annoyance for us is identifiers. And so um, you think about QSIP, for example, which is owned by the American Bankers Association I did not know that. Most people don't. Okay. So they make money off of that. 
Wow. But in order to consume a lot of the publicly available data at the SEC, you have to buy it. Yeah. And so it's wild. I mean, we're able to get around it where we can, we can if, you are, if you are licensed to QCIP, we can send it to you. But if you're a client of ours and you're not licensed to QCIP, you can't get the QCIP values back, right? And so there's all kinds of really interesting things going on in that identification space because it's a weird niche problem for people in our, in, in our world, yeah. right? Like, how do we link all of our data sets together? Yeah. Tracking corporate actions, IPOs, mergers, different data sets, ADRs, foreign issuers, um, you know, different exchanges, you know, going, you know, different levels of securities within a company. It's just, it's a nightmare managing, yeah. maintaining a security master, in essence, is the challenge. Um, and then there's actually, Ironically, companies like Bloomberg, who um, came out with this concept of Bloomberg Figgy, Open Figgy, and it's a completely open source alternative to tracking securities. Mm -hmm. And so it, it kind of works with all the other securities, um, all the other um, identification systems. And so we're starting to see some innovations there where it's like, do you have to buy QSIP? No, you could technically now go use Bloomberg Open Figgy instead. And that's what we use as the basis for our entire system. That's how we're able to give you the QSIP if you want it, it. Um, and, and vice versa. So I think there are so many just intricately woven in oligopolistic things happening. And there's so many layers within the investment and data space. But you know, most people don't know that. QSIP is completely owned by the American Bankers Association. I actually did not know that. I mean, I know yeah. what a QSIP is. I know how we use it sometimes to find a very specific security, and you know, and that I shouldn't say me. The my my investment team does. Right. Um, that's an interesting one. Yeah. You know, I got asked by a client the other day, and I probably didn't have a great answer for this. Like, you know, how does how does the custodian or how does the how does the issuer, right, say Apple, actually know that I have this share to pay me the dividend? And I was like, look. The amount of systems that are connected and how they're using the identifier for those specific shares to get through them, like it's a, it's a pretty sophisticated it is. environment, yeah. it right? Is. Um, so let's jump to another buzz topic sure. um, because I'd like your take on this from a data standpoint. Um, blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies, yes. NFTs, mm -hmm. Dogecoin, like the the amount of data that would seem to be there, right? Say, if you look back at the entire history of say like Bitcoin's blockchain, right? right? And, and I was at a conference for RAA specifically in this space that Rick Adelman started called the Readact. And one of the, one of the vendors or one of the people speaking was just talking about the sheer amount of data that has to get processed by computers all over the world for this. Are you guys dipping your toes into that space yet? And, and as maybe, I'm not gonna say mainstream because they're already mainstream, but as advisors and firms are starting to look at using, you know, well, Bitcoin seems to now be accepted in just about every major investment bank's portfolio and, you know, now getting pushed down. What does that data look like? And, yeah. and how is that now dramatically different from, you know, the SEC traditional databases, mm -hmm. right? When you've got, you know, blockchain technology and, and, and how that's even structured. Walk us through a little bit of that um, and, and maybe what your take is on how that might change the data supply industry and, right. and so we dabbled a little bit almost two years ago. Um, we offered cryptocurrency pricing okay. as a product, and it was just kind of an experiment. And we sold a bunch of it, and then Bitcoin crashed because it's very volatile, and everyone churned. Every customer left, and yeah. we were left holding the bag. It is a huge volume of data. 
And so I'm not, that's, you know, from a market data pricing perspective, it's a security that has pricing. And so we could have added it to our repertoire and we tried it and I don't think I'll go back there again for a while because it, it's not that lucrative of a space to get access to those prices depending on the people that are just doing very sophisticated, yeah. um, kind of trading all the like light coins and things like that. Um, so we dabble a little bit with that. I bought my first NFT recently. Bought a Euler Beats for anybody that's followed that one, which is very interesting. Yeah. It's a totally new security, the yeah. way that they've built that NFT. It's wild. Um, it's like a fixed price curve. It's very interesting. Um, so I have been paying a little bit of attention to this. And I think, I don't think that there's a way to fight it, right? I think of Bitcoin being really a great a great marker, it's the gold, right? Like when people try to make the argument that there's no underlying asset, if you're a fundamental person, right? Yeah. There's no underlying asset behind Bitcoin. Well, ne neither is there behind gold. There's just a limited supply. Right. And so the thing that Bitcoin did well is put a marker on the end of the supply. And so I think that'll be a really great base. It'll be the gold, I think, of the new system. And so I do own some Bitcoin. Um, I think that, who was it, Venezuela, but recently officially completely switched over. Then you see Visa's announcement. And so I think, there is so much still to be figured out, but on a long enough time scale, I'm totally bullish. I think that this is going to be the future of, of exchanging value. Yeah, so there, so dialing in on that, like uh, yeah. bringing the resolution deeper, there are people talking about how you know, blockchain technology will fundamentally transform you know, books and records, for instance, yes. um, doing away with title insurance, mm -hmm. uh, doing away with QSIP numbers. Yeah. Um, how do you see that potentially? Do you actually see that coming down the pipe? That instead of there being traditional books and records and 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 uh, who owns what stock, for instance, right. being you know on a ledger somewhere, essentially, do you see the, the the data in our industry around you know equities and financial instruments also kind of moving into a blockchain type of record keeping? Absolutely, okay. yes, yes, um, and I think it extends so far. I mean, title companies that's a no done with one. Yeah. right, even the music industry, like like. If you, have, if you own a music NFT and you get a royalty every time it's sold, why would you need an agent anymore, right? right. And so there's, it's wide sweeping in some and, and even if you, how do you, how do you minimize you know, piracy of, da yeah. of data and make sure the person that, that's using it is the person that owns it? Yeah. So I think that there's obvious disintermediation happening there in, in I think, legal, healthcare, real estate, insurance, uh, anything that where contracts are involved, right? Um, and I think it's a little bit more cloudy to figure out where that's actually going to work kind of like in the securities and, and trading industry but to your point understanding who actually owns a security at any point in time um, that is absolutely going to be a thing i believe in the next couple of years well it's one of the things that i look at and again i'm i'm a complete novice here so i'm just you know the interested party kind of like looking in and, and reading and then rereading and like i don't understand that and trying again yeah the amount of computer processing power that it takes and the number of you know the interconnected computers around the world mm -hmm. right to process, say, just the Bitcoin, uh, you know, <laughs> information chain. Does that pose a challenge when we think about the sheer volume of trading that happens, let's say, just in the U.S. markets, if financial mm -hmm. instruments were to try to be tracked this way? And now you're a data vendor, right? And and the, the stuff from the companies is maybe a finite set, but now if we're looking at market pricing data or things like this, and you're like, you know, I think like any like any industry, right? Like before the printing press, like could we have imagined it? Like no, right? Like the, the PC, could you have imagined that we didn't need one? We didn't think about it. And so I think it can be really challenging to think about how like jobs evolve around these innovations that are happening. And so 
it might look right now like, well, where are all the computers going to come from to process all these trades? Sure, or what is that this next decentralized network? That has to be? Yeah. But there will be an incentive to do that, right? There will, you will earn something by, by doing those mathematical calculations and having a computer and a server set up to do that. If people can make money, they're going to sure. do it. And there will be crops of people popping up all over the country who are now mining transactions who may not have done anything in the technology world before, but they can learn, they're incentivized, if there's value to be had there, that will just be a new job that we can't imagine because it's never existed before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's, there, I mean, there's so many things that I'm, I'm hopeful for because I could see, you know, uh, not to pick on the custodians, but, you know, the idea of banks and custodians, right? This is one of the underlying concepts of a, you know, uh, say like the blockchain is you don't need to have a bank holding your assets or a custodian holding your assets because there's a you know immutable record yeah. and, and for all you really really techno tech, tech people out there when I say immutable record you're probably gonna you know post a bunch of comments on here like, feel free I'm using it broadly to say like the idea behind there being a public record of something that's really really hard to um, you know to get around or to falsify mm -hmm. um, seems to me to be a really exciting way to approach it I think about cutting the fat out of the industry. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, if, if we don't have to pay people yeah. to be validating records, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and we can, you know, eventually get off of T plus two settlement and, and things like this, like there's some amazing things that happen. Absolutely. Uh, but now we're back to the idea of access to that data and what we do with that data and how we're getting that data becoming even yeah. like more important. Mm -hmm. And when you get, when you trim the fat, people are forced to innovate, right? And that's when it gets exciting. I, I find that to be the most exciting time. It can be scary to think of custodians going away or all of these processes that we're so used to, but it forces people to innovate. And then, then things start happening that we can't imagine because people are forced to figure out what, what their next job, what their next step is, what can they build? Because the fat's been trimmed. So I think that's exciting. Yeah, I would agree. Okay, so this is a good segue into uh, the future of advice, right? So the name of the, 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 name of the podcast, I'm really, really interested in trying to get, you know, people that are in the space that are innovators and entrepreneurs, visionaries like yourself, mm -hmm. without feeling like you're a, 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 you know, a weather person, a meteorologist, where I'm asking you to prognosticate, but just step us forward five years, step us forward maybe 10 years mm -hmm. into the future a little bit. And what are some of the things that you think from your perspective in the financial data supply, they're gonna drive some changes that we should be thinking about or starting to explore as advisors and owners of wealth management firms? Yeah, we touched on a little bit of it already. Um, I would honestly bring it back to ESG. I know you mentioned you're a little hesitant on, you know, cause you're fundamental, right? And, and I think a lot of advisors well, probably Well, and I'm also, are. I should, I should I'll put my little stamp on this that I'm hesitant because I think there's too much subjectivity in grading. And I also am fearful that companies will maybe just gamify this a little bit where they'll say, well, we'll change the makeup of our board or we'll start publishing these types of records because we know that they're markers that are going to get picked up somewhere. Yeah. So I'm just a little yeah. skeptical that say, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, but doesn't I, that happen everywhere? It does. Aren't they already putting it things does. in their, print, in their notes, in their MDNA sections to, so, so, but yeah, sorry, take us no, that's to okay. I, yeah. That was an important point because I think you're asking me like a couple years out, yeah. assuming we fix those things, right? Yeah. Assuming that there's regulation, assuming that there are some standard standards, standards around, around how we do this, understanding that there will always be companies that put, you know, guidance out yeah. there to whatever, um, assuming that there's some structure around that. I think that ESG is going to become part of fundamental. It's going to merge together and it will just be a way that you look at the fundamentals of a, ESG will be a fundamental way that you look at a company. And so I think, how will that look for an advisor? 
partly their philosophy, their strategy, how they're doing it, but also it may be just worked into the system around you, yeah. right? The tools and the apps that you're using may include that. Yeah. Um, and so I do think that it's going to be absorbed and it's going to be, you know, just like we didn't talk about internet companies, we yeah. don't talk about internet companies, just a part of it now. Yeah. Um, I think that that's- It's actually gonna, assumed, I didn't even mention it. I mean, we yeah. don't even mention it, right? Because it's right. just like, well, everybody- so, yeah. yeah, and so I think that that will happen eventually. But to your point, couple years out, right? That we've, we've got a lot of work to do to really solidify that theme right now. And so I think that that's going to be a huge part of the future of advice. Um, and then to your point earlier, which I think was very astute, is that, you know, should you be using the same tools you've always used if the environment's not the same as it was anymore, right? And so it takes, and, and the problem with FinTech is that there's hundreds of apps and tools out there, right? And we're in a unique position because we sell to all of those fintech companies, and so we get to see that stuff happening yeah. before anybody else does. But I'm, you know, I have friends who are RIAs and advisors, and I'm looking at what they're using, and I'm like, have you not heard about, like, you know, there's, oh. yeah, I'm like, I'm just looking at it, like, there are, and, and it's tough because you have to manage your expenses too. Yeah. But the good news is a lot of this stuff is very affordable, and I think. You know, people talk often about the disintermediation of the Bloomberg terminal and breaking that thing apart um, so that you can really customize what you need and which apps and tools you need. It's going to become more affordable, it's going to become more accessible, but it's also going to require some initiative on the end of the advisor to say, well, what's my philosophy? What do I think my customers are going to be interested in? Do they want, you know, will it help me to be tracking live earnings calls? Should I know more about crypto? Should I be able to explain an NFT to somebody? Um, you, know, you know, tracking what they think their customers are gonna be looking for, attaching that to what kinds of tools they need to add to their repertoire. Yeah. I think that's gonna be you know, a custom bundle of what you need to run your shop around you. But it's, it's pick, pick what you want, right? Because there's so many options out there. And they're gonna get more sophisticated, and, and I think they're gonna get more affordable over time as well. Yeah, so a couple of days ago I was in Dallas doing an interview with you know, somebody who's been a leader in the space um, for a long time, and he, he he made a point to me. He said, you know, because I asked him this, this same question, and he said, here's, here's how I would start to address it. Go ask your clients what they want your firm to look like in five or 10 years. And some themes that came out of that conversation, and I want to maybe, we'll wrap up here, because I want to maybe have you riff on this a little bit. Yeah. We live in a world where both social media and just how we interact with people is, is connecting to people you know, and building tribes, building communities. I think of like Peloton, for instance. I think right. of the, you know, just how you've got now, you know, exercise and accountability, and you might be having a, a network of people all over the world that you find yourself, you know, engaging with, becoming friends with, and and holding yourself accountable. I see firms needing to figure out how to build, you know, tribes and communities around themes, right? Around you know maybe ESG themes or around you know like impact investing. That's another you know that's another one that I could see this tool. Mm -hmm. Um, so riff on this just a little bit about the ability to take market data, financial data, and an advisor to use it to maybe even customize investment strategies to build, you know, maybe tribes and communities around. Yeah. That's really interesting. And that's, that's the direction we're heading with the new natural language processing neural yeah. network that's consuming the SEC is that you can develop themes really quickly. Trends, tribes, yeah. you can know, think about even a tribe of companies that have a specific cult, set of cultural values or beliefs. And so um, I think, I always come back to this, right? Like you can select a tribe, but where are you getting the data from, right? Where, how, how do you know these people all like Peloton or these companies all believe in this? And so um, I think clustering, I guess, is kind of the, the way to think about that. And there's a lot of different ways to go about it, but. It, we're getting to the point where the technology behind the scenes to deliver the information to cluster and to understand where the tribes and the themes are 
it's there, yeah. right? And we are just on the brink of it. The sad part about our industry is that finance is always behind technologically, just a little, this no. stuff. It, it hits other industries first, right? Um, but there are companies like us that are, that are out there and, and pushing the envelope a little bit. And so, you know, our goal is to unlock all that information and allow advisors to say, do I want to cluster? How do, how do I want to think about these themes? Um, and so I do think that that's going to be huge. I think tribe is very important. This is getting deep into kind of sociology. And I think yeah. with the pandemic, it yeah. really pushed us away from that. And it's an innate part of humanity to need tribe. And so I think in general, it's a great investing theme to look for, but also a really great idea for advisors to think through because people crave that and they want to they be drawn to those themes. Yeah. And with the power of, of you know, again, back to, you know, another overused term, maybe social media, the, the ability to say, you know, my tribe in my town might only be 50 people, yeah. but spread across the United States, it's 3 million yeah. or something like this, right? I think there's a, a rethinking or a reframing that's, that, that can happen with advisors to start saying, if these are my best clients, and these are my ideal clients, and this is also how I want to align my values, right, with the advice I'm serving, that might have a massive network nationally. Oh, yeah. Maybe a small network in my little town of Grand Rapids, Michigan, but, mm -hmm. but nationally. Yeah. Okay, so I'm really interested to ask this question. I ask this question of everybody at the end of, of our podcast. It's a two-part question, but maybe a little bonus question. Maybe like, I should say it's a two-and-a-half-part question. First part of it is this. If you were to give a piece of advice or, or a nudge mm -hmm. to a next-gen, growth-hungry financial advisor... Yep. Regardless of whether they're in a big firm, little firm, independent RIA, yeah. right? Just that that like person who's looking at the opportunity of being an advisor yeah. and kind of looking at the future. What would you say to that that next gen, growth hungry, focused advisor? Hmm, that's a great question. I would say, don't be scared of what's happening around you. Okay. Be proactive and figure out how your tool set needs to change. I think that is the most important thing. Again, a huge believer in data, huge believer in speed and, and timeliness. And, and the old tools, the old data sets, the old providers, the old systems you had around you to make good decisions for your clients is not going to work anymore. It's not. And a long enough time scale, you're just going to, I won't use the word win, don't want your business coach to get mad at me, but on a long enough time scale, you're just, you're going to be behind, yeah. right? And so it is the perfect time if you want to be slightly ahead of the curve right now before it's too late to reassess the tools that you're using around you. Yeah, that's awesome. So the second part of that, and you might have, it might end up being the same answer, uh, which is why this would be a two and a half part question. Right. If you were advising the firm that's been around for 20, 30 years mm -hmm. or, or longer, right? Just, just kind of think of like traditional wealth management firm, big, small, doesn't necessarily matter, but they've been around for a while. They've kind of been doing it the same way every time, but their leadership is starting to say like, well, if we want to be here and, and win the future, I'll use yeah. the word too, what should we be doing? So talk to the firm owners right. now. Mm -hmm. And maybe the advice is similar, but what's... It's not, actually. Okay. It's very different. Okay. So I, I wrote an article about this recently. It's that institutions, it's not technology they're lacking. It's culture. It is the biggest roadblock for a bigger traditional, if you're thinking about the firm level, it's culture, right? You've got people that grew up in the financial industry who are not comfortable failing. They are not comfortable taking risks. They want to play it safe, watch the bottom line, just imp you know, impress their boss enough to keep moving up, and then the bosses have the same attitude, right? And so there is a giant 
roadblock with culture in these big firms, and it is not easy to fix. It takes from top down and bottom up, getting people comfortable with failure, comfortable taking risks, open to new technologies, willing to try new things. It is a, you, you sometimes have to change out your people even to achieve that. But if you're a bigger institution that wants to be more innovative or wants to act like a startup or, or be on the cutting edge, if you try to shove the technology in without fixing the culture, you know this, running a small, you know, yeah. running an innovative firm, it, culture is a huge, huge piece of it. And so I think that is totally overlooked at the institutional level and critical yeah. for innovation. It's really interesting that you, that you picked that as the answer. And I actually think it's the right one because we're already in an industry that by nature is risk averse at the advisory level, right? Because we get fired for losing our clients' money or making a bad investment decision. Um, But we also are in a business that has this kind of built-in revenue growth over time as long as you don't mess up, right? So the idea is like, you know, don't don't try and tinker with something that's already working. Don't go buy NFTs. We're collecting 1% (laughs) assets under management and, you know, the market keeps going up 30% a year, right? You know, I mean, you know, we get, we get pay raises for not actually delivering any more value to our client. And we might be the only industry that I know of that has built in pay raises for not doing any more work. And I think it does have, and the culture one, um, this is a really good point. Um, So I, I really love that answer because if your culture is such that it's more about don't mess up what's working, right? Right. Technology is going to leapfrog you, right. and, and you're a zombie then. You're, yeah, you you're still put, moving, but... You can put those tools in front of your team. They're out there. You can go subscribe to them. That's and the adoption not, rate's going to be really poor. Right, that's not the hard part. Yeah, and I have talked to firms about this, like, oh, we instituted this technology, and, you know, we can't get anybody to use it. And it's like, well, okay. <laughs> All right, so the half bonus question. So I love both of the answers, yeah. the, the half, the, the bonus question. Uh, I'm an avid reader, and so I always ask people, if you were to pick three books mm. that you've read recently, or maybe it's a podcast, something substantial, uh, what are three you know, books, podcasts, or, or mm. things that you think um, would just be interesting or challenging, whether it's driving culture or driving understanding around you know, the data and the industry? What are, what are things that you know, Rachel's maybe read or listened to lately that? Yeah, I've got a couple good ones. On? Okay. Um, I may overuse this, but it is foundational to who I am, my founding story, how I got started. Um, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Oh, awesome book. Because I think most institutions don't have a whole lot of zero to one people, right? Zero to one meaning somebody who could operate from a position where there's nothing and you've got to create something. Huge risk taking startup zero to point one level people who can think on that level. And, but having a healthy understanding of whether you are not that person, because the world needs both. You need people who can scale something and manage hundreds of people and play in that space as well. And so managing those personalities, figuring out who you are, important whether you're an early stage founder or working at a huge institution that has to make sure you have the right mix of people. Love that book. It was like reading my diary. It was like, I'm a zero to one. Now I understand why I I operate this way, right? So I loved that one. Um, I think another one as well that is very important is the leadership pipeline. So this talks about how when you're building a culture and you're building a team, you often promote from within. But as you move people up the ranks in your company, you take someone that's used to managing themselves and then they have to manage another person. Totally different job. Going from managing one person to a team of people, totally different job. Managing a team of people to managing managers, every corner you turn, it's a 100% different skill set and no one coaches people to get there. Do you know who the author of that book is? Do you remember? Uh, I mean, the leadership pipeline. We'll put it in our yeah, show notes. Yeah, I don't. Like uh, okay. But leadership pipeline, highly recommend. Small company, big company, because 
if you're trying to build an innovative culture, you're going to want to promote people, and you have to make sure they have the right. I've made that mistake before. I've promoted people and wondered why they're not giving me what I want. And I'm like, well, what have I done wrong, right? Yeah. Have I coached them around this corner? Um, and then the third one, which I think is just very interesting and was a good read and is timely, and it probably applies to a lot of things, it's called Weapons of Math Destruction. Weapons of Math Destruction. I like that. Talking through, and I think advisors will resonate with this, the more automated we get, what's happening behind the scenes, right? It, it, it pulls from a lots of different examples of, you know, how, how screwed up the credit card debt industry is, or student loans, or just recidivism. You know, people fill out this thing to see whether or not they're going to recommit a crime and they go right back into jail. Well, who's designing the survey? Yeah. Who's designing the algorithms, right, that are making decisions for us on the front end? But if you don't understand the inputs, it's a weapon of math destruction, and it can have sweeping effects across really important social issues and across the financial industry as well, right? Yeah. So coming from someone who's building AI, <laughs> yeah. I think it's important to have a healthy understanding of, you know, is my AI racist? Yeah. How do I protect against that? How do I make sure that we're not blowing up billion dollar portfolios and things yeah. like that? And so that's a, just a, it's a good gut check book and it's fascinating yeah. to read through. That's, that's uh, I haven't read that one and I certainly will because all of us have biases, right? whether it's around the type of investing we like or what our perceptions of risk are. Yeah. Um, our team tries to challenge ourselves regularly to say, or like, are we infusing our own biases into our advice, right? right? Um, we know we are, mm -hmm. right? It's just a question of, of like, how can you try and you know, break down some of that? And I think it's an interesting thing. Like, there is some software out there, I'm, I'm thinking in like the risk assessment, the behavioral uh, assessment space that firms are using to try and determine how a client's portfolio should be constructed that has really complicated math behind it, right? And I think the danger to your point, which I can readily attest to here, is if you adopt that tool and start putting it in front of your clients and you don't understand the math and the components that it actually took to come out with, whether it was a risk score or something, I'm not saying that those things are bad, but mm -hmm. like we need to understand how the software we're using is actually working, yep. right? Um, we can't just rely on it because it's cool looking and it's new and it's a shiny object and has a great exactly. mobile application. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so the three books were Zero to One by Peter Thiel, yep. which is uh, one of my all-time favorite books. Um, I am a zero to one, but I am not a one to many. I had right. to learn that. Um, a lot of advisors, I think, might resonate with this too, where we were really good at advising or maybe we're entrepreneurial and we start to grow a team and we're like, I'm terrible at managing people. Gotta learn. Um, I'm not the operations person. Okay, so then the second one was the leadership pipeline. Correct. And then weapons of math destruction. Yep. That's three um, very interesting books. Uh, Rachel, I have loved every minute of this interview. As have um, I, this I'm, was fun. I'm grateful to uh, you for having carved out some time in your super busy schedule for this and um, I hope all of our, our viewers and, and listeners on the Future of Advice have gotten a little glimpse into a world that we don't often think about, which is where does the data actually come from that feeds into this and what we should be thinking about in terms of researching new tools that could give us better data, help us build tribes and, and win the future. So thank you for carving out the time for this and uh, love to have you on again sometime in the future. Sounds great, thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. If you'd like to learn more about Rachel and her company, you can go online to intranio.com or she is also on LinkedIn. You can go to LinkedIn and search Rachel Carpenter with Intranio. Again, I'm Ron Bullis, the CEO and founder of LifeWorks Advisors, and thank you for watching another episode of The Future of Advice. We'll see you soon. <laughs>